you have a Bible with you this morning, turn with me to the book of Exodus, the second book of our Bibles, Exodus. Well, we've been seeing that the book of Exodus is a story, first and foremost, about God. Not about Moses, per se, not about explosions in the sky, but it's about God. It's his doing, his power, his greatness on display, him making himself known to Israel and the surrounding nations. He's the lead character. He's the mover and shaker. But we've also been seeing in recent days that God's glorious omnipotence is often contrasted in the book of Exodus with human sin and human weakness. We've seen that in a drawn-out fashion with that back and forth between God and Pharaoh for 14 long chapters. We even saw it last week in chapters 15 to 17 with Israel's sin contrasted with God's kindness and miraculous provision. Remember, if you were with us, when faced with the, the real trial of hunger and thirst, God's people responded with grumbling and complaint and anger and revolt. Remember their question, which ended last week's passage in chapter 17, verse 7. Is the Lord among us or not? What a stark contrast to God's kindness, goodness, power, glory. But there are some bright spots in the book of Exodus some spots where contrast gives way to cohesiveness or places where God and his people are moving in the same direction and are on the same page, at least for a little bit. We could say there's some places where there's a reprieve from the usual motif, which we could call God and his stupid people, replaced temporarily by the the breath of fresh air, which we would call God, and some pretty decent saints, pretty decent servants of his. And that's what we have with our passage this week. Last week, we had three scenes of grumbling. And now in the second half of chapter 17, stretching to the end of chapter 18, there's a breath of fresh air. There's some success. There's people on the same page with God. We could call this a few good men and their great God. It's a breath of fresh air in that there's a positive outcome in each of these three scenes. But I warn you, they're not always easy to understand or apply. So let's read it together. Chapter 17, verse 8. I'll read all the way to the end of 18. It'll take us six to seven minutes or so, but I think it's worth our time to see the whole all at once. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hand grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. 
while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Chapter 18. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other was Eliezer. For he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All the hardships that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, "'What is this you are doing for the people?' Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another. And I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you're doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing, is too, the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. 
and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, and you will be able to endure, and all this people will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. Well, there are a number of reasons for treating this material all together, and I hope to show you some of those along the way in our study this morning. But there are also three distinct parts that hold this unit together. You could break it into two, I suppose. You've got the the battle with Amalek and then the Jethro material in chapter 18. I'd prefer to break it into three parts, though. There's the Amalek material, and then there are two conversations between Moses and Jethro that have their own emphasis and purpose. So here's the first. The first shows us the need for victory over our enemies. Victory over enemies, the end of chapter 17. We read that a new threat emerges seemingly out of nowhere in the text and and probably out of nowhere actually as it happened. Chapter 17, verse 8, Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Now, in Deuteronomy 25, when Moses later on is recounting this story to the people, he says, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. This is the way that lions attack a herd. They go for the the weak and the lame and the little in the rear. That's what Amalek did. Amalek originally was the son of Esau in the book of Genesis, Now, obviously, this isn't the same Amalek. It's not an individual, since this is hundreds of years after that mention in Genesis. But this is Amalek, the name, referring to the nation, the people, the Amalekites, as they're called elsewhere. And if we read elsewhere what they're like and what they do, we find they're a ruthless people. This will become one of Israel's greatest opponents These people are among the other ites, I-T-E endings of nations that Israel will have to conquer to procure the promised land. You know, the Canaanites and Jebusites and Hittites and Amalekites and and mosquito bites. (laughs) My son always likes it when I make that joke. Now, we don't know what occasioned this uh, attack. It's not the point in the passage. The point is Israel's response. That gets the emphasis. Notice Moses has a twofold strategy. Joshua is to take able men out to the battlefield with swords. And Moses and two buddies will go up the mountain with the staff. The staff. 
And by the way, there's mention of Joshua here. You might be wondering, is this the Joshua? Is this the big Joshua who gets a book named after him? Is this the successor of Moses? Yes, it is that Joshua. And we might think that he deserves a better introduction here in this first mention of him in the Bible, especially since he plays such a a large role, especially three to four decades from now. But, But here he is just mentioned to us like we already know him. And of course we do if we've read the Bible at least once. And of course, the first readers of the book of Moses, the first hearers of it, would know who Joshua is. They literally knew him. At any rate, Joshua takes men out to battle, and Moses goes up on the mountain with the staff, and he raises the staff as he did over the Red Sea. Now, some think that the raising of the hands with the staff is an indication of Moses praying here. Perhaps, but it doesn't say that explicitly. And there's no mention of Moses praying when he lifted up the staff and God parted the Red Sea back then. I think instead it's, it's that the staff represents the presence and the power of God. The staff is something like a visual conduit for God on the move and about to act. And so Moses lifting up the staff is an act of faith Believing that God will act, God will help, God will win the battle. But at some point, the observation is made that when Moses' hands and staff are high, Israel is winning. And when he lets them down, they are losing. And as far as physics go, we can understand I don't want to do a challenge right now to find out who in here can hold their arms up the longest. Some of you can probably go pretty long, but probably not all day. Uh, Gravity's real. Arms are kind of heavy, and it's hard to keep them in the air forever. We understand that part of it. But theologically, this is a bit of a mystery. Why does the elevation of Moses' hands affect the battle? And we just don't know. We would want the narrator to step in at this point and explain that to us, or for God to step in and speak to Moses and tell him the significance of all this. We don't have that. The passage just leans into the pragmatics of it all. A stone under Moses' bottom to sit. Aaron on one side holding one arm up. Her on the other side holding the other arm up. Moses is God's man. Make no mistake about it. Even big brother Aaron isn't confused at this point. We would expect a big brother to step in and say, your arms are tired? Well, watch this. I can hold the staff much longer than you can. No, Moses is God's man. But even Moses needs help. He can't go it alone. This thing can't rest solely on him. And so here we have a few good men, Joshua and his troops, valiantly fighting down in the muck, and Moses and Aaron and her up on the mountain, fighting the battle of faith and human weakness. But once again, like all over Exodus, 
The real actor, the real determiner of the outcome is God. And that's what Moses must write down, verse 14 says. This is what he must recite in the ears of Joshua, who will be Israel's foremost warrior in decades to come. All of God's people, but especially Joshua, need to know and remember how God wrought the victory that day. It wasn't a magical staff. It wasn't merely valiant warriors, who are, by the way, in their first battle of their lives. And it sure wasn't Moses' strength or even his faith. It was God. And so Moses built an altar there, a memorial. And he named it, the Lord is my banner. Banner. Think of those flags that are flown on the battlefield. Perhaps you've seen a a movie from medieval times. And you know those various flags that mean different things. Well, the Lord is the first and foremost of these flags. He's He's the one who leads into battle. He's the the one who goes before. He's the one who says, charge to the army. The Lord is our banner. And as for the Amalekites, well, God gives two promises. Number one, that they will continue for a time. Verse 16 The Lord will have battle with Amalek from generation to generation. They are not going away anytime soon. And secondly, their end is sure. It is coming. Verse 14, the Lord will blot out the memory of Amalek. Of course, both of these prove true in the rest of biblical history. The Amalekites are a pesky and frequent foe to Israel, and eventually they are wiped out. Not by King Saul in 1 Samuel 15 when God commanded him to finish off the Amalekites, but he didn't, but by David, fittingly so, in 1 Samuel 30. Now, what's the point of all of this for us and for us today? Well, the parallels of this passage to what we call the New Covenant era, this side of the cross and resurrection of Jesus, they are many, but we got to be careful to have the right parallels and legitimate ones. You see, it's tempting to see a man on a hill with outstretched arms and two men on each side, them being there for salvation and victory, and to run directly to Jesus Christ upon the cross, who was, yes, on that hill called Golgotha, arms stretched out and flanked by two thieves on his side. But there are some ways in which Moses and Jesus are are quite different in these kind of passages. Remember, Moses couldn't go it alone. Moses needed helpers, like every human being does, except Jesus. Jesus did go it alone. Jesus went to the cross alone. 
He prayed in the garden with his top three men who could not and would not keep watch and pray with him for even an hour. He prayed alone, fittingly so, because he went to the cross alone. And when he hung on that cross, at least in Mark's telling of this story, none of the disciples were there. They had all left him just as he said they would. So we don't need to press the details of Exodus 17 to find Jesus in our passage. We could just more generally say, oh, God saves in these ironic ways throughout history, throughout the Bible. God seems to save in these ironic, surprising, and seemingly upside-down ways. I mean, sometimes God saves with a shepherd's staff in the tired hands of an 80-year-old Moses who needs his buddies to keep his arms up. Sometimes God saves with a young man in a sling and a single stone. And supremely, most importantly, God has saved through a man hung upon a cross. God saves and saves to the uttermost as Jesus is crucified in the place of sinners, securing their salvation winning the battle over sin and Satan and death. You wouldn't have seen it coming. He not only gets the victory, but he does it through what looks like defeat. Colossians 2 tells us, though, this was far from defeat. God has forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This God has set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ, in his cross, in the resurrection. And so it would seem like the battle is done. Christ has won. And that is so true and yet not the whole story. You see, just like Israel's battle with the Amalekites, or battles with the Amalekites, so it is for us as Christians that the end is sure, but the end is not yet, and so the battle rages on. To use an illustration from World War II, there's the difference between D-Day on the beaches of Normandy when the Allied troops gained such a victory that it was as good as done. The war was as good as done. But it wasn't done. Hitler played cat and mouse with his panzers for the next several months. Eventually, there was the end of the European World War, and we call that V-Day. Well, we Christians live somewhere between D-Day in V-Day. And so Satan is real. He's defeated, but he's real and he's active. He's, he's on the prowl like a, a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. 
Revelation 12 tells us that because he knows his time is short, he seeks to devour the church. That's why Paul can say in Ephesians 6 that we need to be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. We need to put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood or Amalekites but against the rulers and against authorities and cosmic powers of this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. And keep praying at all times. Keep alert with all perseverance. Spiritually speaking, some of us will go to the front lines with the sword. Some of us will stay back and pray. And others will very practically meet needs. Like here's a seat and how about I hold up your arms. But all of us stand upon Christ and his victory Becomes ours. Secondly, there's the need for recognition of the true God in the first half of chapter 18 of Exodus. The need for the recognition of the true God. And here we come to Jethro, Moses' father in law, who's returning his daughter, Moses' wife, and their sons. Now, we're not given details about how or why or when Moses sent his wife and children back to his wife's father, but apparently at some point he did, perhaps for her safety or perhaps for her to report to her father all that had already taken place in the plagues and in the exodus. All we know is that they're heading back. All we know is that Jethro has heard how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. And so after a sweet reunion, after warm greetings, after inquiring how everyone's doing, Moses gets explaining to Jethro even more about what happened. Look at verse 8. Moses told him all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that came upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. When I was a kid and heard that, I thought that meant that you're supposed to say so. But it's not that. It's let the redeemed of the Lord say that they're redeemed and say how the Lord redeemed them. Psalm 145, God's people shall speak of the glory of his kingdom and tell of his power. We may think of the Psalms as songs, and rightly so. We might remember that the Psalms encourage singing and praise, and that they do. But how often, go search it for yourself, do the Psalms invite us or command us to tell, to proclaim, to say, to articulate, to 
to ascribe to our God what he's like and what he's done. We should be quick and eager to do this. It should be that we can't help but do it. Like those disciples in Acts 4 who were threatened and they said, we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. Never mind the threat. Never mind the trouble. What we've seen, what we've heard is so glorious and fantastic. They had this wonderful, godly disease. You might call it the can't help it. They can't help but speak what they've seen and heard. And may it be so for us. May it be that we're, we're quick to speak. Joyful in speaking on behalf of God. Effusive in speaking about him and what he's done. Surely Moses was effusive. Surely this is merely a, a summary of what he said to his father-in-law in verse 8. I'm sure he went on and on about all the ways, all the hows, all that the Lord had done. We, we should do this kind of thing with other Christians, for other Christians, to other Christians, with other Christians. We should talk about what God has done in the Bible and in our lives and yesterday and today. We should encourage each other. We should exhort one another. The Lord should be quick on our lips with each other. And we should do this especially with those who haven't yet heard. They don't know. They're somewhere in between. They've heard some things, but they don't yet know. They haven't yet had a turn like it appears Jethro had here in our passage. He had heard some things before he ever arrived at the camp. But after Moses explained more, well, look at his response. Verse 9 and following. In verse 9, he rejoiced in all the good that the Lord had done. And then verse 10 and 11, he confesses, Blessed be the Lord, Yahweh, who's delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians. Verse 11, now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. Now, this is a Gentile. He's a Midianite priest. So whatever god or gods he has worshipped, and whatever he has thought about Moses' god, apparently something changes here. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. He finally comes to see something of the singularity of the true and living God, and he confesses it for himself. This would seem to be, then, an, an Old Testament Gentile conversion. Remember the possibility of the inclusion of the stranger, as God put it back in Exodus 12. Don't just stiff arm. No, a stranger among you, they have to come in. They'll have to be circumcised in Exodus 12. But they can come in. This isn't quite Great Commission stuff yet. Let that have its proper place in the New Testament. 
right? There's something great about Jesus saying, go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. People have said that there's a, a sense in which the Old Testament religion was a come and see religion, and the, the New Testament is a go and tell religion. Well, I think there's some truth to that. But let's not downplay the come and see and let's rejoice with Jethro. He is one who did indeed come and hear and see with the eyes of faith and confess Christ, well, the Lord. And now we can begin to compare and contrast at least two of our three scenes in our passage. Don't we have two examples of Gentiles coming to Israel? One, to wreak havoc and be destroyed. And another, to come and inquire and hear. And as we put it in New Testament terms, and be saved. So what's it going to be with you? Who is on the Lord's side? Choose this day whom you will serve. If you're not for him, you are against him. It's painted in stark pictures for us here. The Amalekites are against God and his people. Jethro believes in this God alone and identifies with God's people. What's it going to be for you? There's a great need for us to have victory over the greatest enemies. Greatest enemies of sin and Satan and death. And there is a great need for you to recognize the true God shown to us now, specifically in Christ. I pray you'd come to know that today. But thirdly, the third scene, we learn there that there's need for leadership of God's people. The second half of chapter 18. It's about leadership. We have another conversation between Moses and Jethro. And this one, it seems, gets very practical. Because there's, a, there's this legitimate need that Moses is seeking to address. You see, when sinners live together, there's conflict. And at times, the conflict gets to the point where you need some mediation. You need some arbitration. You need someone else to decide who's in the wrong and who's in the right. That's what Moses has been doing. Sometimes, day and night. And the people also need teaching. That's occupying his time. He says in verse 15, the people come to me to inquire of God. Well, what pastor, what spiritual shepherd doesn't love it when people come and ask questions about God? And these people, though they're Jewish, having grown up around this stuff, they've seen the plagues, they've experienced the exodus, but they don't know this God, even like Moses might know this God. And so Moses says, I make known to them the statutes of God. I, I teach them. But this is a lot of people, 600,000 men plus women and children. That's way too much for one man to teach, never mind to be their small claims court about whether this is John's mule or Bill's mule. But that's what Moses has been up to, and Jethro's concerned. Why do you sit alone? 
Verse 18, you will certainly wear yourself out. This thing is too heavy for you. And so he paints a picture. He makes a proposal. He says, how about Moses, you focus on prayer, that's in verse 19, and instruction, that's verse 20. And then Moses will delegate the smaller judicial decisions to capable, wise, godly, and, well, men with integrity. And they will decide things for the people. And only the very big or complicated matters will they bring to Moses. Jethro says, they will bear the burden with you this way. It'll be easier for you, verse 22. You'll be able to endure this way. And they'll go home happy this way, as opposed to waiting in line all day, hoping to get to the bench and being turned away again. And here, once again, we can see how our scenes or sections go together. Moses sits and intercedes in the first and the third. He needs help, help with arms, help with his caseload. And so helpers step in and helpers help and the outcome is good. And in the middle, a Gentile is converted and even becomes a crucial advisor. Now, what does all this mean for us today? Is the second half of chapter 18 simply about good leadership lessons? Like those you might find in a book by Stephen Covey or John Maxwell? Oh, there are some gems in this passage, I tell you. You've got to learn to delegate. Take advice from others. Don't push too hard. Don't wear yourself out. Well, if you know that that's not the point of this passage, you might think it's similar but more spiritually related. Perhaps Exodus 18 is hinting at a good structure for local church government even today in the New Covenant. Well, if so, it's only because of some similarities that we find in the New Testament's prescription for church leadership in its structure. In other words, we should be careful about using Exodus 18 as this key text to figure out how to structure authority in a local church. We go to the New Testament for that, where it gets much more clearer and directly applicable. What we see in the New Testament is similar, but also different than what we see in Exodus 18. It's similar in that we can observe in the New Testament, a church's leadership should be a shared leadership. The word elder in the New Testament is always used in the plural. There should be more than one. You think of Acts 6 and the beginning of that deacon role, which arises from the need for the apostles to give themselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. That's very similar to Moses in his role in Exodus 18. However, there is no Moses role in a New Testament church, in my understanding of the New Testament. We see elders, we see fellow shepherds, we, we see pastors, and these words are used interchangeably. 
One is not like a super pastor among the other, you know, kind of pastors. No, there is a difference that some are paid, some are not. That's 1 Timothy 5. Some will devote their energies and time to the public preaching of God's word, like I'm trying to do here. That's also 1 Timothy 5. But there's no Moses figure. I'm one of the pastor elders here at Desert Springs Church. I'm not over the other elder pastors. In fact, I'm under the other elder pastors just like you are. In the New Testament, pastors are both shepherds and sheep. So Exodus 18 would lead us in a different direction if we let it. So what is it about What is it doing? What's it for? Why is it here? Well, the second half of chapter 18, in its own context and history, was readying God's people for the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, which happens in the next couple of chapters, 19 and 20. This is the prologue to Sinai. The the threefold grumbling of last week's passage shows the need for the law. And this week's threefold beauties and successes also show us and anticipate and set up for God's people the giving of the law. You see, before the giving of the law, Moses had to teach the people because they didn't know, they hadn't heard, they hadn't read. It wasn't there. Moses apparently somehow knew some things about God's will before the formal giving of the law in Exodus 20. And Moses had to teach the people what he knew. And when they came to him with their problems, he had to instruct them. They they came with their questions. Is this right or is this right? Am I right or is she right? What's best here? What does God think of this? What is equity and justice in this situation? Well, the law will provide that even with case studies. And so the problem of the second half of chapter 18 isn't Moses' inadequacies or shortcomings as a single human being. It's the limitations of a people without God's word. God is getting his people ready for his word. God is getting Moses ready for the ministry of the word. That's what he needs to focus on, even if he doesn't release his hand from from the top end of authority among the people of God, humanly speaking. Oh, how we need God to speak. Oh, how we need to hear from God. Oh, how we need the Bible. And God has spoken, not just on Mount Sinai. You think of the Bible and all of its stories, and all of its revelation, all of God speaking, all of its different forms and genres and purposes and promises and warnings. How precious is God's word to us. It should be. It should be food for us. We should feel as though we're starving. 
or we're dying of thirst when we don't have it. Oh, how God has spoken so many times over and supremely in his son who is the incarnate word, the word of God in the flesh. There he is. That's what God has said. That's what God has revealed that is so essential. And so Hebrews 1 puts it like this. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, like in our passage, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power every christian has this this jesus this revelation this bible and so there is a, a significant democratization i may be making up a word there i'm not sure it's not that we no longer need teachers. No, that's in the Bible. It's not that we no longer need human leadership. No, that's in the New Testament. We keep needing leaders, godly leaders, wise leaders, but we need leaders, first and foremost, who stand on, who minister from, and minister with the Word of God. We need leaders who really have this one thing to say, the Bible. And that's what they stand on, that's what they teach, that's what they're about, and that's the kind of people then that their leadership produces. Like those noble Bereans in Acts 17 who received the apostolic teaching examining the scriptures daily to see if it's true. They didn't just take the apostles' word for it let alone a pastor's word for it. They didn't take the apostles' word for it, but they had to make sure it was from the word of God. So let us this morning praise God for his word. That's where our, our text began. Write it down. Recite it in the ears of Joshua and others. Remember it. It's been written down. Praise God for his word. And praise God for the God revealed in this word, particularly in Jesus Christ, the God-man. Let's pray. Yes, Lord, we indeed thank you for your word. So often on a Sunday, we spend much time in your word. We look at your word. We don't as much talk about what your word is and what it does. We think of Psalm 119, which celebrates your word in such lofty terms for 176 verses. And perhaps we'll be reminded and encouraged this afternoon to read it again and be refreshed in the beauty and grandeur, the necessity and wonder of a God revealed in this word. 
You indeed, Lord, are, you are our great God. Help us now to sing of your greatness with great praise for your namesake and for our good. Amen.